Jack is the executive director of the Knoxville History Project, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to discovering, preserving, and teaching the history of Knoxville, Tennessee. There are few, if any, organizations quite like this, and I'm really proud that Knoxville has such an organization. He was born and raised here in, in Knoxville. He was an American history major who's become one of our most beloved journalists and historians and was among the first to show us that Knoxville has a rich history that parallels American history at every turn. From his start as a museum tour guide at the 1982 World's Fair to his work with the Knoxville Mercury writing his columns, The Scruffy Citizen, and contributing to Knoxville-based crossword puzzles. Jack has been educating us about our city for decades now. So where is Jack? Oh, okay. Thanks a lot, Nilda. It's a great honor to be here, and I appreciate the, the work the library does and, and the History Center does in, in improving our community and letting us know more about it. And it's a, a special uh, delight to be here and get to see my old friend Wendell Potter, who I got to know at the World's Fair a long time ago. I worked for his wife, who was in charge of the uh, Egyptian pavilion. I think there were only three actual Egyptians who came to the World's Fair, and, <laughs> and most of them didn't speak English, so they needed some help from uh, people like Lou and, and me um, to run the, run the thing. But I, I'm grateful to be catching up with Wendell, and, and I'm really proud to know him for all the great work he's done in, in recent years of our whole democracy. But I also want to uh, acknowledge uh, a guy that I've admired mostly from afar, whose birthday is today, uh, David Dickey. It's his 90th birthday, and we're, uh, he's a... Uh, he, he, he's a he's a journalist. I ran across his uh, articles in the News Sentinel, I think, back in the 1950s, and always about interesting things from literature to the natural world. He's he always has a an interesting and, and often witty take on things. So I encourage you to look the, his articles up through the papers to pixels and or what, wherever you can find them. They're they're worth reading. He's also the only reason I ever get my typewriter out these days because he always says we typewritten letters, and I prefer to respond in kind. But I want to talk about the history of journalism in Knoxville. There's a lot of stuff that's not as well known as it should be about uh, Knoxville journalism history because I think Knoxville was really a pioneer in journalism in many respects over the last 226 years. And it began very early thanks to a guy named George Ralstone who uh, came here in 1791. And he's one of our few connections to the heart of the American Revolution. He was from Boston, Massachusetts. He lived there uh, during the early days of the Revolution, was three years old at the time of the Boston Massacre. He was six at the time of the Boston Tea Party. He surely heard about these things, eight years old at the time of uh, the Battle of Bunker Hill. But uh, he found his way in the, in the South working for newspapers and was encouraged to start uh, a printing press here because Knoxville was the capital of a new thing called the Southwestern Territory. And uh, they knew that they were going to have to be printing lots of stuff, being the capital, uh, including uh, law books. Uh, and they, there were law books printed that were known as Ralston's Laws, uh, informally. Printing presses are big, heavy things, and he had a hard time getting his printing presses here early on. So he, he printed the early issues of the, of the Knoxville Gazette in Rogersville before he got the printing presses all the way down the river and could haul them all the way up to the hilltop in Knoxville. I think his place eventually was on Main Street. 
try to picture Knoxville in 1791, which is really more an idea or a proposal than an actual place. It was a place that uh, had no municipal government at all. It had no churches, not, not a single church, didn't have any schools, had very few stores, uh, had a couple of uh, taverns. But even without a church, without a school, we had a newspaper in 1791. It was a biweekly newspaper in the early days, the Knoxville Gazette. Its purpose was very practical. It, they had to, uh, of course, uh, let people know about the latest legislation. A lot of the early laws of the territory were printed in full, and so were the treaties with the Cherokee. And uh, these were all things that people need, needed to know about, and, and thanks to the uh, newspaper, people could know about it. He didn't have a lot of local news, but his, it's interesting that his very first priority with publishing the Nostal Gazette was to print in its entirety what may have been the most controversial document of the 1790s, a book-length essay by Thomas Paine called The Rights of Man. This is such a radical document that I think that even some alternative newspapers would think twice about running the thing in its entirety because you could lose advertisers over this thing even today. But he ran the whole thing over a period of months, and I I think that says a, a lot about his earnestness in this endeavor And also a lot about the perceived remoteness of this area. People in Knoxville in the 1790s really considered themselves part of the greater world. Here was a guy in exile from England in France writing about the French Revolution, but people in Tennessee really needed to know about this. People were very interested in in news from Europe, and that's what dominated many of the early issues of the Gazette. By the way, we don't know what uh, Mr. Ralston looked like. There's a picture of him in the uh, Tennessee Newspaper Hall of Fame at UT campus, and I would like to talk them into revisiting it. It's a picture of an old man with with mutton shop whiskers, kind of a graying old man with a a balding uh, uh, head. But it overlooks the fact that George Ralston died at the age of 36. Um, So... uh, uh, But anyway, he did die very young. I'm not sure of what cause, but he left uh, his paper to his widow, whose name was Elizabeth Ralston, and she, I think, has a claim to be the first female journalist in Tennessee. Um, this was uh, the first newspaper in Tennessee, and she was in charge of it. And she ran it uh, herself for four years before she married again and, and gave it over to her new husband. But Knoxville was, uh, thanks to the Rollstones, was a printing center in its early days and even uh, printed some novels. Uh, the first novels ever published in Tennessee were published here thanks to the having a printing press. But because printing was such a big deal, and we had to make law books here when Knoxville was the capital of the Southwestern Territory and the state of Tennessee after 1796, making law books for everything from here to Chickasaw Bluffs on the Mississippi River uh, was, was an important thing to do. So that was paper was a very big uh, industry here, one of our first industries. And uh, we have uh, one little legacy of that in, in the name of a paper mill road in Bearden, which is named for an early 19th century paper mill that dates from this from the era of people who at least remembered um, George Ralston and his kind of heroic efforts in starting up. The first paper in Tennessee, actually the second, no, the third paper west of the Appalachian Mountains was the Knoxville Gazette. So it was, uh, there were a couple of papers in Kentucky before, just a few months before his. Anyway, in 1816, in fact, 1816 was the first year that Knoxville finally had a church building. Uh, the Methodists and the Presbyterian churches finally built their first churches in 1816 was uh, was the year that Frederick High School started the Knoxville Register and ran it for some years. It was the one of the big papers of the 19th century, ran for uh, some 50 years. I want to talk about some of the interesting people that came out of this era of, of newspapering. Um, uh, one, one was a guy named Thomas Humes, um, who's become one of my heroes in, in Knoxville history. 
he was uh, in his 20s, found him in so, himself in the surprising position of, I think, being Knoxville's first historian. Uh, he was uh, one of the only people who, who made note of the fact at the time of Knoxville's 50th uh, anniversary that something should be done. And he came up with a little history based on the 50-year history of the city. I remember in, in 1842, and they were actually not quite sure when the city was founded, in fact, and he thought 1842 it was a good year to go with. Um, <laughs> But for the uh, for the fiftieth anniversary, but he wrote a uh, history of the city that was based on what he'd learned, and it was surprising to many people who lived here because most people had not lived here for the whole time and and just had heard rumors about uh, about people like George Ralston, of, who was already long dead by this time. Thomas Humes was a, a journalist. Uh, I think he worked for the was an associate editor of the Register or something one time, but but he was. Uh, Later became an Episcopal priest, then, and then he became a university president, and that's why there's a, a Humes Hall at UT. He was president of the university at the time that it became the University of Tennessee. It just had just been an East Tennessee organization before that. But then after that, after this career that had included being a journalist, a historian, an Episcopal priest, and a university president, he became a librarian. And it was uh, was the first, I think, full-time librarian in Knoxville history, was the first Lost McGee librarian. He was an old old man at the time, but I think he was very proud of that uh, position. This is back when, by the way, Lost McGee was in the building we now know as the Arbori building on Gay Street at the corner of Gay and, and Summit Hill. It's still standing. It was a, a library that was uh, built in the 1880s to be a public library Was that was partly funded by renting the bottom floor to retail, uh, which uh, was, was a pretty good business plan. Another person who came out of this newspaper era who became uh, pretty well-known was a humorist named George Washington Harris. He was uh, at first a, a Democratic political columnist and, and uh, wrote a good deal in the papers of the 1840s, but became known nationally in the 1850s for creating a character called Sut Lovingood. And he wrote published some of the Sut stories in the Knoxville newspapers, uh, became a a significant figure, Seth Lovingood, uh, is believed to have been an inspiration for Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, even though Huckleberry Finn is much a, a toned-down version of, of Seth Lovingood. But this was a day, and, and I'm kind of humbled to realize that uh, in these days, uh, people weren't just journalists. They had to do other things. And for a while, George Washington Harris was uh, postmaster for Knoxville. And during his tenure as postmaster, they decided to cite the new post office which happens to be why we're here and not somewhere else. Uh, George Washington Harris was part of the decision-making that went into putting the Custom House, which was also the post office, over here, even though it didn't happen until after he he died. But they discussed this in the 1850s, and there was some discussion of, uh, of whether this was too remote from, from the center of Knoxville to have the post office. Knoxville was centered around where the courthouse is today. Early papers are kind of perplexing to people who are trying to study local history because a lot of the news is national and international in nature and not so much about the city. But uh, there was uh, more and more local news in the 1850s as we have more uh, people uh, writing for the paper that are interested in this growing city of Knoxville and, uh, and people who are expecting to spend some time here and not just move on to somewhere else. There were... Um, Multiple papers. It's uh, uh, every time a paper closes, people think the uh, the, the sky is falling. Uh, when Metropole sh- shut down almost three years ago, people said, "Gosh, it's the end of uh, alternative newspapers." But I, I always look back in the approximately twenty years before the Civil War, seventeen newspapers opened and closed in Knoxville. They just it was Knoxville was a meat grinder of newspapers. It was a <laughs> It was a, a lot of this was political stuff. It was a meat grinder of politics in many ways, too. It's it the Whig Party and the American Party and all these other parties were just kind of churning 
through the, the nation. But here's some names. The, the Vedette, the Flag and Union, the Yeoman, the Plebeian. Kind of a theme there. The American Campaigner, the Knoxville Standard, and the Knoxville Mercury were all uh, pre-Civil War newspapers. One that we're not so proud of is called The Southern Citizen. It was done by William Swan, who was sometime mayor of Knoxville. And uh, the most peculiar person to live in Knoxville, I, I challenge anybody to name someone uh, whose story is stranger than that of John Mitchell. He was an Irish revolutionary who was uh, jailed in Ireland for advocating violence against the crowd. He was a, he was a would-be terrorist, perhaps. They discussed executing him, but they decided to transport him to Tasmania, took him around the other side of the world where they thought he'd be safe there, and uh, dumped him off, and he was there for a few years. He escaped and came to America, and for reasons he could never explain to his friends back in Ireland, he came to Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, um, and, uh, and settled here for several years. I've tried to nail down exactly where he lived. It was somewhere along First Creek, probably just east of the old city area. But he hated Great Britain so much that he also hated everything British, and that, to him, included abolitionism. Even though I don't think he ever saw a slave before he arrived in Knoxville, he became a fierce pro-slaver, probably the, the, one of the hardest-core pro-slavers in Knoxville at the time and uh, started a newspaper called The Southern Citizen uh, with William Swan, and its purpose was mainly to justify and perpetuate slavery. He had three sons, uh, all of whom fought for the Confederacy, and uh, it was called The Southern Citizen, but he moved the paper here to Richmond and eventually became editor of the Richmond Inquirer there, and later still editor of the New York Daily News, this guy. And later still went back to Ireland and was, uh, as an Irish revolutionary who apparently had been forgiven at this point, uh, was elected to British Parliament um, <laughs> in, uh, in the 1870s. But a story unlike any other, he was included, by the way, in a big book called The Great Shame by Thomas Keneally, the same guy that wrote Schindler's List, about uh, the experience of the Irish exiles in America, which were very, very different from each other. But he was one of two big examples that they examine in this book. But it's hard to say what he deserves, but I think he's someone who should be studied further. One newspaper that opened during this crazy era that stayed for a while was called the Knoxville Whig. Uh, it was founded originally in Elizabeth and moved to Jonesboro and uh, was moved to Knoxville in 1849. Its proprietor, you may have heard his name, Parson uh, William G. Brownlow. I, I did some studies uh, on this uh, comparing how often Parson Brownlow was referred to versus William G. Brownlow, and, and everybody in his day and hours called him Parson Brownlow so much that people think that was his first name. It was called that because he was a Methodist parson, mainly early in his 20s, uh, and occasionally gave a sermon after that. But by his 30s, he was mainly a journalist and was uh, a very interesting and extremely opinionated character who had uh, grudges against everybody from uh, Catholics to Presbyterians to uh, slaves and, their, and slaveholders. He really uh, disliked almost everybody that wasn't a white Methodist from Tennessee. But he had a flair for wit that I think made him a popular newspaper man, and not only here but in other parts of the country. His feelings about slavery were complicated, and any time people make statements about Parson Brownlow, you always want to add a footnote, no matter whether they're saying something good or bad about him. Uh, because he's not someone that you can describe quickly. I'm convinced that he was left entirely out of the Ken Burns Civil War series only because it would have taken a full hour to, <laughs> to, uh, to describe the guy. But he was an abolitionist in his youth, back when it was unusual to be an abolitionist in the South, but later became, by the 1850s, such a pro-slaver 
that he participated in a, in a national debate on the subject and became uh, known for this debate. But later on still, he became, uh, again, during the Civil War, a very fierce abolitionist and was, in fact, the guy that brought uh, the, the right to vote to blacks in Tennessee faster than any other state, not only in the South, but uh, he was, I should have backed up, journalists rarely get to be governors, but he got called to be uh, governor of Tennessee at the end of the Civil War uh, during the Reconstruction era. He uh, wanted to force Tennessee kicking and screaming, if, if need be, back into the Union. He wanted full suffrage for blacks and no suffrage for former Confederate whites, and pretty much got his way for a few years. But I think it was, was certainly one of the most influential people in Tennessee history during this period. His paper, The Nussle Whig, has been described as the only pro-Union paper in the South during Southern occupation. It's remarkable that Parson Brownlow kept running this anti-Confederate paper when the city was occupied by the Confederates, and they put up with it for a while. There was actually a journalist uh, here in town, uh, Felix Zollicoffer, who had been a journalist in Knoxville before the war, and uh, was I think it was his soft heart that allowed Parson Brownlow to keep operating this fiercely pro-Union paper for a few months. And meanwhile, he lived just around the corner on Cumberland Avenue, East Cumberland Avenue, which doesn't exist anymore, but uh, he and his wife lived there with, with a house uh, frame house right on the street uh, with windows easy to break, and sometimes people did break them, uh, with his U.S. flag flying every day during the early part of Confederate occupation. He was finally arrested by the Confederates, but let go, went on a speaking tour of the North, and where he was already building up, a, through his newspaper, building up a, a bit of a reputation. While in the South, he was being uh, hanged and burned in effigy as far away as Texas, because people considered him a traitor, even though he'd spent his entire life as a Southerner. He was from Virginia, spent most of his life in Tennessee. He was hated far and wide, even though his newspaper never had as big a circulation as the Mercury did last week, the Nossal Mercury. So, But it got around. People heard about it. It was almost like Twitter of the 19th century. People would quote him and say, can you believe what this guy in Nossal said? And they say, okay, let's burn him. And they would uh, burn him in, in effigy and, or hang him in Alabama or whatever. But he was very popular in the North, went on a speaking tour, and actually uh, at one time toward the end of the war, the Nossal Whig, which was renamed the Nossal Whig and Rebel Ventilator. Uh, they, uh, I, I think he meant uh, ventilation in the, uh, in the anatomical sense. Of, uh, but uh, but uh, was so popular up there that he had more readers in the North than he did uh, locally. He mailed this to Cincinnati, and it was distributed uh, throughout the North. I was curious about how well known he was, and I looked him up on uh, this fascinating thing on Google called Ingram uh, last night. He was referred to in print more in 1865 as Parson Brownlow, not W.G. Brownlow or William Ganaway Brownlow. As Parson Brownlow, he was referred to in print more often than Walt Whitman, Henry David Thoreau, and Her Herman Melville combined, writers of his generation. I, I saw this on a footnote once in a copy of James Joyce's Ulysses, in fact, that a reference, he uses the phrase, the fighting parson uh, in Ulysses. I don't know if anybody here is read Ulysses over their summer vacation or whatever, but um, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a hard book to figure out, a lot of it. Um, but, uh, but there is a reference to the fighting parson, and at least one scholar thinks this reference to the fighting parson in Ulysses, which is set entirely in Ireland, is a reference to Parson Brownlow. I can't prove that, and I kind of doubt it. I thought it was worth mentioning that at least one scholar outside of Tennessee thinks that was the case. A lot of uh, interesting people worked for him, and uh, some of them were almost opposite in temperament from Parson Brownlow, who I think even people who agreed with him would probably have a hard time staying in the same room with him very long. 
One of them was William Rule, who I think is one of the more admirable and uh, interesting people of the 19th century. Uh, William Rule was a guy that began working for the Whig back in the 1850s before the Civil War, was a Union officer during the war, came back after the war, took up with the the Whig again, and stayed in journalism. Uh, He was in journalism for 60 years, it's hard to believe. William Rule, I think very differently from uh, Parson Brownlow, loved partisanship. He would love 2017. This would be one of his favorite uh, years of the future. Um, And by the way, people say, has things ever gotten this bad? And it's not that heartening to think, yes, they have been worse, but it was right before a civil war. But uh, I I think William Rule saw the, the extremes of partisanship and was part of a wave of journalists who introduced a new idea to journalism, and that was the idea of objective journalism. He wanted to be fair to everybody. He was a Republican himself and made no bones about that. Uh, and he, sometimes he was a politician. He was mayor of Knoxville a couple times, I think. But, but he was uh, an editor who tried to be fair. And even as a Republican, uh, one time when a socialist gave a talk in, in Market Square, he, he went and covered it. And he said, you may disagree with his proposals, but he's making some points that we can't ignore in American history in the late 19th century. But he ran a pretty good paper working for the, first the Chronicle, then the, uh, the Tribune, and then the, the Nussle Journal and Tribune, which later became the Journal. By the way, his last uh, office was right across the street, the same building where the Mercury is. The, uh, the arcade building is still standing across the street, beautiful marble building, uh, which is where his uh, William Rule's last office was. He was still editor of the journal in the 1920s. Civil War veteran uh, was editor of the journal in the 1920s during the era of radio. He had just written a uh, column uh, about Herbert Hoover, who he thought was not such a bad guy, in 1928, and came down with appendicitis, of all things. He was 89 years old. He never took more than a few days of vacation in his entire life, but somehow you know, kept it going. He was, uh, by the way, one time challenged over something he'd, uh, he'd written in, in the street and uh, barely averted a uh, gunfight on Gay Street. But his son actually was uh, grievously wounded in a gunfight that was entirely over a column that had run in the uh, journal criticizing uh, the, the city physician. And uh, the city physician's family didn't like this very much and decided to ambush him on the way to church outside of St. John's Episcopal Church over there. As he was walking in with a roll of uh, hymns, he was going to sing in church that day. This was James, James Rule, I think his name was, but he was, seemed to be following his father's footsteps. So journalism was a dangerous occupation in those days, even if you were trying to be fair. Today, uh, William Rule may be nationally best known for his most famous hire, and that was uh, Adolf Ox, son of a Bavarian Jewish family who uh, lived not far from here. They lived just about two blocks of, from where we are. They lived in a little shack in the 1860s. They were uh, a poor Jewish immigrants. They had been successful when they first got here. Long story, but they'd lost all their money, and uh, all the kids had to go to work. And uh, Adolf Fox was, what, 10 or 11 years old when he got a job as a paper boy for the Nossel Chronicle, which was run by William Rule. Uh, he advanced beyond being a paper boy. He got a job as an apprentice printer at the newspaper back at the time. It was uh, on Market Square. And uh, at the age of 13 or 14, loved the job. He was very good at the job. But uh, even though he was a kid working there, his shift didn't get off until midnight. And uh, he was very skeptical of walking home alone, not because he was afraid of people in the saloons on the Bowery. He was kind of used to them, but he didn't like walking by the Presbyterian graveyard. He surprised William Rule by asking again and again, is there something else I can do tonight? Just because he, he didn't like the idea of walking home in the dark without company. Sometimes he would do that all night 
according to his own speeches that he gave at, uh, at lunch and talks for the rest of his life, he learned the whole career of journalism that way. He learned the, all the ins and outs because he got to do all the jobs that William Rule had to throw at him, including rewrites and paste up and all the things they used to do to, to make a paper. And these things, uh, I think, were impressive to people later on when he bought a, a failing paper in uh, Chattanooga called the uh, Chattanooga Times and uh, built it into a respectable paper. And back in the 1890s, the New York Times really was the failing New York Times. And, uh, and, and, he, and it, was the, uh, it was the fourth paper. I think it had a very small circulation of 20,000 or something like that. And he thought he could buy it and make it into something respectable. In 1896, Adolf Fox, this guy from Knoxville, bought this paper and created the New York Times as we know it today. He was still a publisher when it won its first several Pulitzer Prizes in the, in the 20th century. But it's a, a fascinating American story. It's a real uh, Horatio Alger-type story with a few twists to it. He uh, created Times Square. He created the New Year's Eve celebration. He wanted a secular celebration that all Americans could celebrate together, but never forgot his Knoxville roots. He came back here fairly frequently to give talks and came back here after William Rule died in 1928 to pay homage to him and visit his grave at Old Grey Cemetery. Anyway, during the time that Adolph Fox was working there and that William Rule was running the paper, it's just fascinating to think of all the people who came together at the same time. But one of these people who were writing for the paper in these days that we don't think of as a newspaper writer was a woman named, uh, her name then was Fanny Hodgson. She was later known as Frances Hodgson Burnett, who wrote The Secret Garden and so forth. But she lived in Knoxville at the time and was actually writing some travel logs about her travels in England when she went back to her home country for a few months, uh, wrote about for the local paper. And it's just fascinating to think of William Rule editing these columns and young Adolph Ox typesetting them. She and, and Ox were both gone by 1877, uh, but Rule remained a prominent editor here for about uh, half a century after that. The growth of Knoxville is really interesting to read about, especially during the Victorian era, when the city was sextupling in size every 15 years or so. It was uh, lots of new things were happening new things that some people liked and other people didn't. And almost everything that happened was controversial. It would be hard to think of anyone being opposed today to like the Dogwood Arts Festival or something like that. But back then, in 1883, people proposed a music festival in Knoxville. Uh, It was the Knoxville Music Festival. It was going to be a big deal. It was an opera festival. All these famous people are going to come to town. And who could be against that? Uh, But the Sentinel was. They were were, uh, strongly opposed to it. Uh, But the Journal and Tribune uh, liked the idea very much. In 1886, a teenage girl named Patty Boyd, who, uh, if you know the East Knoxville, you know the Boyd's Bridge area, Boyd's Island, all these things, that, that was her, her family. She uh, approached uh, an editor at the journal, uh, someone, and I, I haven't figured out whether it was William Rule himself or not, but, uh, and said, uh, had a complaint from the point of view of an 18-year-old girl. She said, all you write about is politics. Why don't you write about what people are really doing and saying? And he said, well, why don't you do it for us? And she sent in something, and it was kind of interesting, and he ran it, and uh, they gave her a job. She became, I think, the first full-time female journalist in Knoxville history. I think we undercut her a little bit when we called the first society page editor, which she later became, because she covered lots of things, and her her articles are, are often more interesting than the, the political storms of the era that are today are so arcane that they're hard to follow. If a president came to town, for example, Patty Boyd would go try to interview him and would, would describe the visit. Uh, she would write, added the color commentary, more or less, to Knoxville history of the, the era. She was very... I have known people in my life who remembered her, and she was, even in the 1940s, was a very colorful character, known for her big hats 
I think she had a better reputation than Hedda Hopper or something like that, but she was uh, much beloved and, and also uh, respected and to some extent feared because people never knew what she was going to be writing about. But, uh, but one thing about her, in her early days, for the first 20 or 30 years, she was not allowed in the journal newsroom. Women were not allowed in the newsroom. They might hear some bad words or, or smell some cigarette smoke or something. Um, so, uh, so she sent her uh, daily stories in by way of a family servant. I've tried to find uh, examples of investigative journalism, and they're rather rare anywhere in America before the 20th century. It's sort of a new idea that was pioneered by a woman named Ida Tarbell, who uh, Wendell's new project is named for, is named Tarbell for, I think, one of America's first effective investigative journalists, again, writing uh, her exposés of the oil industry in 1902. And uh, during this time, there were other investigations of meatpacking plants and so forth. I always forget that Upton Sinclair, who uh, wrote his famous book about meatpacking plants based on the armor plant called The Jungle, uh, was not a uh, piece of journalism but a novel in 1906, so he was uh, safer than a journalist might have been from repercussions. But during this time, it was the progressive era, and there was a lot of interest in journalists going into places that mainstream people don't go and describing them. And uh, in the Nostal Journal, when William Rule was still in charge of it, they ran, I think, one of the most interesting and quotable pieces uh, written during that whole era. And I don't know who wrote it, if Steve or anybody else has any clues about this. And it was in July of 1900, they walked into the Bowery area, which was on either side of First Creek. It was a place of saloons and various dens of iniquity, lots of things that people who lived in Fort Sanders or Broadway or something just either didn't even know about or just tried to avoid but they uh, wrote this piece called A Night on the Bowery. It's a fascinating piece of work and that I recommend you look up. It's probably online somewhere now. But this was the beginning of a lot of series of, of intrepid journalists walking into this place that had lots of problems. The founder of the YWCA in town, uh, one of the reformers, was Florence K. Payne, and she wrote a piece called An Imaginary Tour of this area in 1906. A Night on the Bowery had made it sound like a fun but kind of dangerous place, but this imaginary tour based on her her visits there, I think, with police in tow is pretty horrifying. She described the women and children who lived down there, some of whom were suffering from syphilis and drug abuse and really very serious third-world problems, we would call them today. But, uh, in fact, uh, another reformer, Henry Spencer Booth, went down there in 1912, uh, and wrote uh, sarcastically titled A Trip Through Knoxville's Foreign Mission Quarters in 1912. And his point was that there were conditions in Knoxville that were worse than anything in Africa, that churches were more accustomed to sending money to African missions when they, they were saying, we got a foreign mission problem right here. And uh, he described a lot of the same things that uh, Ms. Ms. Payne had, uh, had described uh, six years earlier. So, and I think these articles did a great deal to raise awareness of that Knoxville really was a city, despite its factories and, and music festivals and everything else, it was a city that did have some, some very serious problems. I want to talk about one guy in particular that we have quoted on the wall over here, and uh, someone whose name I think we should know better than we do, a Knoxvillean named Paul Y. Anderson. He was a tough kid from South Knoxville. His father was a quarryman who had been killed in a Derrick accident. His mother, uh, who raised their kids alone, was a schoolteacher. He just grew up tough uh, and was, by all accounts, not afraid of anything. He worked for William Rule's uh, Knoxville Journal in the first years of the century, uh, up to about 1910 or 12 or so, and uh, later got a job with the uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which was one of the, uh, the newspapers with some national credibility for covering national uh, news, and became their Washington correspondent. Also wrote some for the nation. 
He covered the mafia. He covered riots. He covered uh, all sorts of things, the Scopes trial. I'll mention more about that in a minute. But he hated uh, fake news. He didn't call it that, but misleading news that was put out by official sources as if it were true stories. Coolidge's State Department apparently was notorious for making uh, its relationship with AP at that time, which was agreeing to promote fake news as if it were real. The AP had reported that both Nicaragua and, and Mexico were under influence of communism. Anderson exposed that. But he became better known for describing the very complicated machinations of the Teapot Dome scandal. And this is what he won his Pulitzer Prize for in 1929. The biggest scandal before Watergate in America, probably in the 20th century at least. But his mother and sisters lived here all this time, and he came back every year to visit them and would often go on a speaking circuit and was here for often a couple of weeks, staying with them when they lived on Phillips Avenue, which is over near the new Sutry Landing Park. And uh, His house is still standing. I hope uh, we find some way to save it or to save his memory somehow. Meanwhile, a few times Knoxville made national news. Mary O'Connor shooting, which took place on this block in, in 1882, made national news uh, that year. And it was an AP story that caught uh, the eye of Mark Twain when he was just finishing up the last touches on his book, Life on the Mississippi. He found uh, references to uh, people who uh, thought that Southern culture was the highest and best culture in the history of human civilization. And he said that this was an illustration of Southern culture thoughtlessly omitted by the advertisers of three guys, uh, all comfortable, wealthy, middle-aged, middle-class guys who shot each other to death in the street. Knoxville was really ashamed of this. Knoxvillians were not all that happy when Mark Twain perpetuated it. And now in any library, you can pick up and see his full account of it. Some other issues, like the race riot of 1919, which is too complicated to get into today, but it was not the finest hour for Knoxville newspapers because there were varying accounts of the dead in this bizarre weekend. There were, by the way, several black newspapers published during this era. They're not yet well documented. A lot of them are just missing altogether, but would love to see uh, more evidence of how the black community uh, perceived that era. I mentioned the uh, the Scopes trial just briefly. It was the trial of the century, one of the biggest news events of the century in Dayton. Of course, you know the story about John Scopes, the young, very young uh, teacher who was uh, got in trouble for teaching evolution. They had the big trial with Clarence Darrow and, and uh, William James Bryan fighting each other in the courthouse down there. Hundreds of reporters went there, uh, and uh, two of them were former Knoxvillians writing for a national audience. One was Joseph Wood Crooch who was the brother of the guy for whom our park is named. Charles Cooch established this park that we enjoy. But he was a very well-known and, and uh, one of the more intrepid uh, journalists uh, who uh, was pretty scathing toward his hometown, especially his alma mater, UT, for not standing up uh, more forcefully for John Scopes during this time, as well as Paul Y. Anderson. He was down there, too, writing for the Post-Dispatch. And Knoxville had its own uh, reporters down there who did a pretty good job, I think, John T. Montoud was the Knoxville correspondent there. But H.L. Mencken was uh, the, the famous Baltimore journalist, uh, sage of Baltimore, uh, was known for his uh, his disdain for Southern culture and so the Southern intellect. He had said many times that most Southerners are idiots. But he wrote a, uh, an essay about this right after the Scopes trial. He said, well, I still say most Southerners are idiots, but he made exceptions for Joseph Wood Crooch and uh, Paul Y. Anderson of, of, of Knoxville. <laughs> I love the early columnists, uh, and I've come to feel almost as if I know them personally after reading them uh, over the years, mainly through historical research. 
One uh, a guy whose name we've almost completely forgotten is that of George Mellon, who was a lively intellect. He was a Leipzig-trained uh, professor of language at UT, but he's also an associate editor and columnist for the Sentinel and wrote some of the first columns I've ever read about Knoxville history. He was really interested in the complicated history of the city and especially uh, also with Cherokee culture. Another was uh, B.F. Henry, uh, who was uh, one of the the guys that were, was interested in, in the new form of jazz in the 20s and 30s and wrote some about that for the New Sentinel was later an editor at the Washington Post. We have him to thank for one of the bits of misinformation that he didn't intend to be misinformation. A lot of people have heard that when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan's show that the crime rate dropped in America, and it was all due to his little quip. This was a jazz fan who's probably in his uh, 60s by this time, regarding the Beatles, as you would expect someone like that to, to regard the Beatles. That he said, during the hour the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show, not a hubcap was stolen in America. <laughs> And, uh, and many people, many people have seen this quote out of context and thought it was literally a crime report. Of, uh, of, uh, and it was really just B.F. Henry's joke. By the way, he uh, grew up in what we now call Fourth and Gill. His house is still standing and very nicely uh, renovated and occupied. Another person, and this is a guy that I think first got me interested in newspapers. When I was a kid, I would read The Funnies first, and then I would read a column by Bert Vincent. And uh, in the 1960s, he was still writing columns, and they were always interesting. They were, to me, even to a little kid, he told these just bizarre stories. They were kind of like uh, local, believe it or not, sometimes. I, I've been enjoying his columns that I missed before I was born. He'd been writing since the 1920s. This column called Strolling, which was at first an, a very urban column. It was illustrated with an aerial picture of downtown, and it, the title was literally what he did. He strolled around and described everything he saw. And every walk was an adventure. He loved Market Square. He went there almost every day. And farmers would call him when they had something astonishing like a giant squash or something. And, and <laughs> it, it, it was like it wasn't real until Bert Vincent has been there and written about it. Um, but he was fascinated with the Bowery, the same Bowery that had been such a problem. And it was still there intact, even though the saloons had been closed long ago. And uh, he would walk down there all the time and got to know everybody that lived and worked down there. People like a a guy named Doc Mullins. He had a voodoo shop, literally, about two blocks from here. I've never heard of it except in Bert Vincent's column. Doc Mullins was a guy from the Caribbean islands, would sell you bat wings or dried newts or whatever you needed. Um, And uh, this was part of the scene of the Bowery, that he loved these streets with so many, like 30 or 40 different businesses of all sorts on every block. Another person I've gotten to know much better in recent months, thanks to the Papers, the Pixels thing that the library did last year, just kind of upended my life in some ways. By uh, I'd spend many hours on this sometimes without having many hours to spend. But Lucy Curtis Templeton, who everybody read and everybody respected, she grew up in Knoxville and actually was our connection to the Victorian era because she remembered this time. She remembered Frances Hodges Burnett and, and her family living here. They hired her, uh, I think the New Sentinel hired her in the early 30s to write a column about flowers and trees, and she liked to write about flowers and trees, but she liked to write about a lot of other things too, and she wrote a lot about, about Russian literature, about uh, cuisine, about uh, anything that struck her fancy. And I think it was her response to John Gunther, more than Gunther himself, that changed Knoxville for the, for the better in 1947. Uh, as you remember, John Gunther in 47, he was a journalist himself, published a book called Inside USA in which he referred to Knoxville as the ugliest city in America. And most Knoxvillians responded in self-righteous indignation. How dare this Yankee come here and tell us we're ugly? But she said, he's absolutely right, and I've been saying this for 20 years, and nobody listens to me. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but, but, but I think it was Lucy Curtis Templeton's response to Gunther that started all these beautification efforts that led to the uh, Dogwood Arts Festival and other things. 
And she made uh, Grunther's assessment seem more important uh, and motivated improvement, which is something people in Nassau had not thought about in a long time. Of course, Carson Brewer followed her and carried the Dogwood Arts Festival flag uh, with his column, This Is Your Community. And we had so many interesting columnists. Don Whitehead, who he, he was, his first year as a journalist in the uh, 30s and 40s, was a first with a journal and then with AP. But during World War II, when he became known as Beachhead Don, because he invaded uh, with forces, was at the uh, landing at Dormady and, and other landings in, uh, in Italy and elsewhere, uh, won uh, a lot of uh, plaudits for his work during the war, but also won two Pulitzers during the Korean War. Then made his book about the FBI became a movie, but in 1959 he came back to the town he wanted to live, which was Knoxville, and became a New Sentinel columnist. After World War II, we see an interesting shift, I think, that, which was commenced to some extent by uh, Bert Vincent from an emphasis to the urban to the to the rural. And you could argue that this was overdue, that Knoxville had been just ignoring its surroundings for many years. We had so many interesting things to write about. But Bert Vincent, after 1950 or so, began writing more about the mountains and the countryside, and many of these people were beginning to live outside of Knoxville. We became more rural in our point of view by the 1960s and 70s. Uh, in terms of what our newspaper people wrote about. Many times Knoxville journalism has been dramatic, is when a reporter for the Knoxville Journal got to participate in a post-midnight raid on Eastern State uh, Mental Institution in 1971. It uh, actually resulted in major changes in that institution. But more often, journalism just reports the news and helps readers to get to know their elected officials and offer readers clues about what's possible in their community. The second dailies across the country were dying by the early 1990s when the journal finally closed. I think television, not the Internet, obviously was more of a factor in that. But that gave room for a new thing called the Alternative Weekly, and this is something that happened across the country. I was happy to be connected to a paper called Metropulse, which opened in 1991. It was known for its strong advocacy. Some people thought it was liberal. That's ironic because Metropulse was always owned by Republicans that people thought it was liberal. It was just because they were hearing things that they weren't used to hearing from the other media, I think. But we did tend to bring out the complexity of some issues, like environmental concerns, and and examine some communities in the city that had been ignored or seemed to be ignored by the mainstream media. And we also brought a return to an urban emphasis, which I think the city had lacked for several years. It had become sustainable by its later years. I won't go into this in detail, but we were bought by a big corporation and shut down mainly not because we weren't profitable, because we weren't profitable enough for a corporation that thrives on big profits. And uh, we took a leap and thought that profit motive in this case actually undermined something worthwhile that would have been uh, acceptable if it had been locally owned. So we took a logical step and started a nonprofit devoted to education and the idea that journalism is educational, which makes sense to me. And the, the question is, can we get can we ever convince readers to pay for journalism? Um, the only effective way to pay for journalism, the most effective way over the last 226 years and longer, if you go back to the 1600s, is through advertising. That's always been the uh, economic premise for journalism. Subscriptions have never been more than a fraction of any newspaper's revenue. Is I once worked for a marketing weekly that uh, imparted information with no advertising at all. And it was for people who had, across the country who had reason to follow the coal industry. And, and it was just strictly a paper that you paid for, and that's all it was. Well, the subscriptions were $800 a year. And uh, we had a few thousand people who were willing to pay that. But uh, we didn't have advertising, so it was expensive to put out. In the future, I think it may seem strange, uh, kind of in the same way it may seem strange in the future, that we expect employers to pay for our health insurance. 
it may seem strange that we're always expecting uh, uh, restaurants to pay for our news by advertising their happy hours. Local news, I think, could still thrive, but maybe not for a profit. I think anyone who invests in journalism today has to think of it not as a profitable enterprise, but run it like you would run a yacht. You don't buy a yacht because you think it's going to be profitable. You run it because you think it's a beautiful thing and you're proud of owning it. There have been, throughout Knoxville history, even the 19th century, several examples of publishers who ran newspapers at a loss. But corporations don't ever do these things. There are, uh, are hazards in that rich people tend to be newsmakers, and this was a, a problem for us. We had a developer who owned Metropolis for four years who often was in the news, and no matter what we wrote about or didn't write about what he did, people would say, gosh, why is this guy telling Jack to write this? In fact, he didn't tell me to you know, stay away from anything, but people perceive this this way, and that in itself becomes kind of a part of the, a message that you don't want to be there. Readers could easily pay for a newspaper. I think if, if just the people who picked up the Mercury were to donate $20 a year, it would be completely sustainable. But getting that to happen is the trick. Uh, we haven't found any way to fund paper that works as well as public broadcasting's uh, pledge drives. Anyway, there's still volunteer journalism online. People love to write some kind of volunteer journalism. It's hard to get people to, to not write movie reviews, for example. Um, but uh, And I'll, I'm going to keep writing my column, whether people like it or not. Uh, but it's hard to... <laughs> it's hard to... Appreciate that. It, but it's hard to prioritize it. Um, over the years, I've written some hard news, which usually involves engaging with people about trying to portray things uh, to their best advantage, and that, and that may not be entirely true or especially talking to people who don't want to be talked to. You have to be ready to make enemies to be a good journalist. And at several points, in the middle of a story due in two days, I found myself wishing I could just quit and go home and have supper. Uh, the hardest parts of journalism, the things that keep you up at night, are maybe the most important parts of journalism. And not just investigative parts, the big, tough stories. On the bus yesterday, a UT professor asked me about city council candidates. He'd seen a whole list of city council candidates, and he hadn't heard of any of them. He said, how am I going to find out about these people? And I said, well, there's a newspaper, a daily newspaper. is run for profit and controlled by a, an out-of-state corporation and run for the benefit of stockholders who don't live in Knoxville, but they may be able to help some. Um, maybe they'll know something. There's information out there more than ever. This is the information age. But what's planted and what's real and what's just misconstrued We've heard uh, recently about the idea of a food desert of places, uh, in, especially in poverty-stricken areas, where people don't have uh, access to good food. But just lately, we've been hearing about news deserts. And, uh, in fact, I got an email from someone at Chapel Hill in North Carolina asking me about whether I thought Knoxville was becoming a news desert. Knoxville was a pioneer in journalism uh, 226 years ago, bringing journalism to the, the frontier. And I can only hope that we're not pioneering a, a different sort of, sort of era. Anyway, thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to a podcast of Knox County Public Library. To hear other episodes, please visit our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.